Uh, Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 11. And then I'll read one verse from Proverbs 13. One verse from Ecclesiastes 2. And then we'll read from Titus 2, uh, verses 1 to 8. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their, pillar, their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. And for Proverbs 13, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. From Ecclesiastes 2, For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and collecting, that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Then the New Testament lesson from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. Again, it's on page four of your bulletin. But as for you, Paul says to Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith and love and patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet and chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, 
In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and corruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. How are Christians meant to live in an age such as ours? You ever had somebody ask you that question? Or, what are we to do? Look around us. What should we do? The Bible does not answer every question connected to what am I to do in the same way. There is more details on some things. There are more details on some things. and There are more details on others. But one issue the Bible addresses over and over and over and over and over again is the family. The Holy Spirit through the various authors of Scripture, really appears to leave no stone unturned when it comes to the ordering of the family. You might say, Pastor, you're going to preach another sermon on the family. Well, friends, every time we baptize a covenant child, it screams family, household, covenant, and terms like it. If you want to stop having sermons on the family, then stop having babies. Actually, don't do that, please. Therefore, we are going to address it again today. We're going to address the family once again, but a very particular, a very narrow, specific issue about the family. And it comes from Proverbs 13, but we're going to use all the text that we read to draw it out. That particular aspect of the family is building an inheritance. Building an inheritance or building for the generations to come. Children, I need you to understand something as we set out on this. Whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, this is true. And sadly, non-Christians have understood this better than Christians have recently, by and large. Of course, there are exceptions. What is that thing that I want you to understand about life? Here it is. The decisions of your grandparents made in the past, the present, and the future affect your life. The decisions that your grandparents made before you were ever a blip on anybody's radar affect your life. They also affect the lives of your parents. The lives of your parents, dear children, past, present, and future, affects you. And, as the Scriptures say, and as, as Proverbs 13 says... It will affect your children as well. And then, 
your decisions that you make right now and as you age, they affect you, they affect your children and those grandchildren that you will probably have that you likely haven't even thought about yet. Now, why does baptism remind us of this? Because one of the reasons you are baptized as an infant, one of the reasons, and I highlighted it in my explanation of baptism, is because we baptize infants based on who the Lord is to their parents. That is to say, we baptize infants because their parents are Christian. Therefore, who the Lord is to you as you grow up, young children will determine if your baptism, your children are baptized or not. You see, it's a wonderful truth of baptism that's not often emphasized because we think in such individualistic terms, your baptism is not just your baptism. It is a sacrament given to the church by the Lord Jesus to mark out those who are His. You see, when you are baptized, you are named with the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There is only one baptism, and it is in the name of the Trinity, and it is given to the church by the Lord Jesus. Just like you've been baptized, so I have been, and so the covenant child that was baptized today has been. You are His, dear covenant child, You belong to the Lord because your parents belong to the Lord. And if you remain faithful to the Lord, your children will be His because you are His. Now, as far as the theme I mentioned earlier, consider the first part of Proverbs 13, 22. Look in your Bible. Just listen or follow on page four of your bulletin. It's right there in the middle. The first part of the verse. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children or to his grandchildren. Very straightforward interpretation. If you are good, you will leave an inheritance for your grandchildren. If you are not, you will not. Notice the inheritance is not defined. Certainly an inheritance based on wealth is not ruled out because of the way the latter half of the verse goes. Talks about the wealth of the sinner being stored up for the righteous. But there is always going to be an inheritance for the righteous. Ecclesiastes 2 proves this, as does Proverbs 13. That inheritance might come from their righteous grandparents and parents before them. Notice it's taught in both verses. But if it doesn't come from them, sometimes the source of the inheritance of righteous men is wicked men who have gone before them. The wealth of the sinner is laid up for the righteous. Either way, as Paul says in Romans, all things are yours in Christ. Dear Christian, this is just an Old Testament way of proving that same point. Whether they come from righteous men before you or unrighteous men before you, God has laid them up for you if you belong to the Lord Jesus. So what about Deuteronomy 7? What it is, it is one of the recipes that Scripture gives us in how to establish an inheritance for our children's children. 
To put it more simply, Deuteronomy 7 teaches you how to love your grandchildren. Even if you don't have any yet. Deuteronomy 7 teaches you how to love your grandchildren. And to bring in Proverbs 13, part of loving your grandchildren is the inheritance you establish for them. You might say, Pastor, I don't have any material benefits to give them. I don't have any land. I rent the house that I live in. Well, Deuteronomy 7 certainly addresses and includes something of a spiritual inheritance. There are more than there is more than one type of inheritance to leave. So as we direct our attention for just a few moments to Deuteronomy 7, know that Deuteronomy 7 is not some Old Testament uh, weird passage that is just about law and commands. It contains right in the middle the foundation of every command of all of Scripture. It is the mercy of God. This mercy of God is rooted in the past based on something that He has done, and yet it carries on into the future. In verses 6 to 8, this past mercy of God with ongoing significance is described. He said, You are a holy people, for the Lord your God has chosen you. Past reference. I chose you. You're holy then because I chose you. You're holy now because I chose you. And that determines how you are to live. How you are to prepare yourselves to uh, lay up this inheritance. Election is probably the simplest word to describe what's going on here. But there's a more devotional word that we could use. And that is mercy. God in His mercy makes His people His own, not because of anything in them or in you, but because he chose to love you. Let me take a sidestep for just a moment and say that I am not talking about the nation of Israel. I am talking about the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, for a time in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, were the covenant people of God. However, they are not anymore. These promises, these commands, and these warnings, yes, they applied to them, and many of them failed to keep them. But these same teachings are reflected in the New Testament, and all of the Word of God is for the people of God. So when we say these things, God in His mercy makes His people His own. I'm not talking about those people who bow the knee to this blue and white flag with the star of David on it. God in his mercy has chosen his elect in Christ in every age, not because of anything they've done, but simply because he chose to love them. Ephesians 1 teaches the very same thing. He freely chose based on no external force. No one was in the eternal counsels of God twisting his arm to make him choose you and your family. He simply set his love on you because he wanted to, 
And because he has set his love on you, you are a people for him. He didn't ask your permission. You are a special treasure above all others on the earth. And further from those middle verses, verses uh, 6 through 8, it is God's full intent to keep the oath which he has sworn to your fathers, and you might say, well, you're talking about the Old Testament, Pastor. You're thinking about the Scriptures wrong. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, the people of God in the wilderness are our fathers. This is the passage for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, like all of Scripture. Children, let me remind you that God is fully committed to being God to you just like he was to Abraham, just like he was to Moses, just as he has been, is, and will be God to your parents. You can include your, your grandparents in that if they are Christians because God's covenant has to start somewhere. You see, this free mercy of God that makes you his also leads him to make demands. You see, your parents instruct you. Your grandparents command you because you belong to them in some sense. But even more so, you belong to God. One way is out of saying, uh, out of the commands, or excuse me, out of the indicative, meaning God's declaration, he declares you to be his because you are his, out of that truth comes the imperative, God's command. Now, I want to frame just a few comments from Deuteronomy 7 around three phrases. I had three words, but they were too technical and nerdy to use and to be useful, so I just came up with three short phrases that might be uh, more helpful for you to remember. The first one is prepare. The second one is be clear. And the third one is to remember. So prepare, be clear, and remember. All right, those three things. First, prepare. Did you notice when I was reading Deuteronomy 7 that the Lord uses the word when? When. When these things come to pass. That is, when I give my and your enemies over to you. When I bring you into the land. To put a new covenant spin, not to twist the text. That's not what I'm saying. When I begin to fulfill my promises. Children, you know, when someone uses the word when, like when you go upstairs to do this, they're preparing you for what you ought to do when you get upstairs, right? When you go in the yard and see this, they're preparing you for what you are to do when you go in the yard and see that. It's like, get ready, be alert. Rest assured, phrases like that. What exactly are they to prepare for? I've hinted at it already. They are to prepare for God keeping his word. When I fulfill my promises is a way to summarize this. When I keep my word or as I keep my word and just as them, so for you. Friends, the Lord has made promises. I read an abundance of them to you regarding the sacrament of baptism. And you are to think when, not if, regarding those promises. 
But God's when does not mean maybe. It carries a certainty. It is a certain promise. And in doing this, the Lord is preparing them, and I'm going to argue he's trying to prepare us. He's preparing them to think of uh, how they should think once these fulfillments begin to be noticed by them. As I fulfill my promises, when I fulfill my promises. You see, the truth about being ready for God's when, W-H-E-N, is if you don't know his word, and if you don't believe it, it is going to be very difficult for you to be ready. It basically assumes that you are living in accordance with God's commands. Because as the end of this text says, you can look on page 4 or in your Bible, as the end of this Deuteronomy text says, God keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. A thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Now, how long is a generation? About 40 years. How long is a thousand? A thousand, right? A thousand times 40? 40,000. I'm one of those people that don't believe the earth has been around that long just yet. So we still got time to wait on these promises, right? 40,000 years, let's say. It's probably not God's point to nail a time period down, but He's saying a long time. God keeps His covenant. And He's saying to be prepared. In some sense, you prepare for God's keeping His promises by obeying. But also, being prepared helps you to obey because once the keeping of His promises becomes noticeable, temptation will come. And that leads to the second point. Before I move on to that, just think for just a moment about about what I'm trying to say. I'm speaking very generically But as you put into practice the Word of God and you begin to see His blessing in your life, temptation doesn't go away. It comes. Right? As we seek to live according to His Word or when I begin to fulfill my promises, this is how you should think. We're going to get to the way you should think in just a moment. But you know this as a Christian, don't you? When you really, really, really start trying, as you ought to do, and know you should, temptation doesn't go down. It goes up. Now, your power to resist by the Spirit goes up as well. But the temptations grow. They are still present. So we're preparing for this. God says when, not if. So let's be clear about what we are to do when this happens. Within your thinking, once you see the promises being fulfilled, you must be clear in your thinking. And what what, what the Lord does is He lays out for them several temptations that they must avoid. I'm going to summarize them. We could spend a lot of time here, but I'm going to try to work through them very quickly. The first thing that He... uh, The first temptation He lists that they must not give into is making nice with unbelievers. The second is marrying their children with those unbelievers. And the third is making nice with the gods and the worship of those unbelievers. Right? 
Making nice with unbelievers, that's at the very beginning where he says, um, when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You might say that sounds a little harsh, Pastor, but I don't know if you noticed in the very first hymn that we sang. This is why you should think about the hymns that you sing. Make sure you aren't singing nothing that you don't mean, though you should mean it. Uh, First hymn, number 73, verse 2. Did you notice it? He puts the nations under us and makes us all triumphant stand. He gives us for our heritage his promised rest, a goodly land. He puts the nations under his people. Yes, that's Psalm 47, but we're not dispensationalists. The word of God is for the people of God. We are not to make nice with unbelievers. God says in Deuteronomy 7, he's going to put them subject to us. Not making nice with unbelievers is in a sense to not make nice with sin in general, but sinners more particularly. You've been bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have bowed the knee to him. They have not. Therefore, do not let them or their vices reign over you or over your family. You see, again, as God begins to fulfill his promises, you as Christians, you begin to have victory over sin because of the defeat of sin at the cross. Maybe you see things like certain positions being led by and filled by Christians. Or, or you as parents, you begin to see the blessings of, of the discipline of the covenant being fulfilled in your home. There are so many things you could bring up. God is fulfilling his promises. But what these things are proof of is they're proof of that you've been purchased by the Lord and that his promises are being fulfilled. But when they happen, notice I didn't say if, because God says when. When they happen, think clearly about the things that have been and are being defeated. Unbelievers and their sin, and do not let them back in. This middle point is part of the whole reason I've chosen Deuteronomy 7. Because we're talking about inheritance here. And one of the things that impacts inheritance tremendously is marriage. Who your children marry. If you've ever gone through a will or anything like that, you know it to be true. Being clear about marrying your children is an abundantly important matter that so many have dropped the ball on. But it's not a new temptation. It's always been a temptation. Even here in the Old Testament. Do not overlook that God does not say you probably shouldn't. He says it is forbidden to give your daughter or to allow your son to marry someone who does not know the Lord. Why? Because they will turn them from following the Lord. It doesn't say they might. It says they will. These precious covenant babies that become impatient young adults, amen, you are not to permit them to marry those whom the Lord declares enemies. 
Now you might say that, Pastor, that makes me think about who the enemies of God are, doesn't it? Well, yes, it does. It might make you say something about little Timmy in private that would make you uncomfortable. He doesn't go to church. He doesn't respect you. Oh, but he loves your daughter, doesn't he? Friends, he's ungodly. You don't give in to her. You don't give her to him. Absolutely not, the Lord would say. Men that do not honor the Lord are not permitted to marry God's children. How about who your sons will marry? Do you think of these things? No matter how beautiful the girl is, no matter how good she makes your son feel, no matter how much your families get along because of old times, if that girl does not love the Lord, she is not permitted to marry your son. And you are forbidden from permitting him to marry her. Now, don't use the excuse that you can't control your children. God is all-knowing. Granted, maybe you can't. Maybe you've lost that authority and influence long ago, which is the case for many. But let me give you a word of advice. Please listen. Go down swinging. Go down swinging. Don't give up. Is it more important that your children think you love them or that the Lord thinks you love them? Because there has been many a marriage that occurs because parents don't want to affect their relationship with their children. And what that really means is they don't want to make their children mad. They would rather their child face the temptation of walking further away from the Lord than to make them upset. This happens because we're not thinking clearly about what it means to belong to the Lord. And these decisions have an immeasurable impact on that inheritance that you are seeking to leave your children and your children's children. It is likely, if we would think more about the third point I made about not playing nice with false gods, if we would think more about those other children and who they worship, it would enable us to think more clearly and not offer fake kindness to our children. You see, the Bible teaches us that thinking clearly about false worship is imperative in all of life. Friends, it is the very first of the Ten Commandments. Not the tenth one, the first one. It is no coincidence that who children marry is sandwiched between these two bits about idolatry. The marriage of our children is one of the areas where we are most prone to downplay these issues that the Lord highlights. But we are not to make nice with false gods and their worship. Instead, we are to see to it that in our midst they are destroyed, not given an inch, not given a foothold, that we serve the Lord in full devotion and think clearly. So we prepare so that we can be clear in our thinking and we remember because the ground of it all, as I hinted at earlier, the ground of all Christian living is that Christians belong to the Lord. Remember it. When you're tempted to think without clarity, remember that you 
and yours belong to the Lord. You see, Christians live in the present, the present, towards the future based on God's actions in the past. God has set His mercy on us. That determines how we live right now towards the future. You cannot forget it. You cannot stop remembering it. And if you do, you will fail to think clearly. You will fail to be prepared. Yes, the argument is circular, but it's what God has given us. God is even so gracious to guard against presumption in verse 7 and 8. What is presumption? Presumption is when you assume that God will forgive you no matter what you do. Presumption is when you assume the Lord's mercy will always be there, even if you raise your fist at Him for a season. Part of the reason that this is the case, that He warns about presumption, He does it, By saying, obedience is not what brought you into this covenant. I didn't choose you because you were obeying. I chose you because I loved you. It was his free and unmerited favor. The Bible teaches that we can reject him and fall from his favor, but we cannot earn his favor. If it seems like a contradiction, again, take it up with him. So our three words, prepare, Be clear and remember. A final word is covenant. These final three verses. God's covenant with you. What is it? It is his commitment to you, his binding of himself to you through the blood of Christ that carries with it promises for obedience and curses for disobedience. That's a long way to say, children, God's covenant with you is what he calls his relationship with you. You are in covenant with God. And your children are included. Parents, your children are included. Grandparents, your children are included. And laying up an inheritance, coming back around to this, laying up an inheritance for your children and your children's children is a matter of God's Covenant, because he is in covenant with you and your children and your children's children. And that is the foundation of that inheritance being guaranteed to them. God remembers your faithfulness and blesses the generations to come. To summarize in verses 9 through 11, verse 9, God is faithful. Verse 10, God will repay those who hate him. And not be slack in doing so. Verse 11, because this is true, you shall obey what he commands. Knowing what the Lord commands tells you that hating God is not simply cowering in your closet to bow the knee to an idol. But hating God is just disobeying him. And out of that flows so many other sins, of course. God keeps covenant with those who love him. And keep his commandments. Call that what you will. But it's a direct quotation of the scriptures. And you need to repeat that rhythm to yourself often. Because it will help you prepare. It will help you think clearly. And it will help you remember how many decisions have we made in life. Assuming 
the mercy of God. It was a hard decision. So I just chose what was easy, what was easiest because I knew God is merciful. But if you repeat this rhythm to yourself, he is faithful. He repays those who hate him. Those who love him show that they love him by obeying his commands. God keeps covenant with those who obey his commands. God keeps covenant with those who love him. Those who disobey him really hate him. Repeat that rhythm to yourself often. It will help you prepare. It will help you think clearly. It will help you remember God is faithful. He repays those who hate him. And if I obey him, it shows that I love him. The way to inheriting these promises is 100% grounded in God's faithfulness. But it is also grounded in your loving him and keeping his commands. There is no contradiction. Now let me, as they say, if you're from the South, you've probably heard this before. Let me go from preaching to meddling just a moment. Let's talk about college. Steve, I had uh, dinner with the Newmans this past week, and it got me thinking about college, and I saw this quote. The statistic this week, I wanted to, to comment on it, share it with you. A 2021 study from the University of Michigan indicated that roughly 62% of students remained inappropriately active each semester. A 2021 study from the University of Michigan indicated that roughly Two-thirds of students remained inappropriately active each semester. Other studies reveal the same or worse. What is the point here? This is the, the quote. College campuses are notorious hotbeds of sexual immorality and fornication, and everyone knows this. Why do I say this? Because the decision about what you make for your children's future, I would say it weighs tremendously on how you view things like college. Stop thinking like the world that your children must go to college in the sense that the pressure from the world and the church is always there. It's like you're, you're going to be guilty, you're going to be shunned for depriving them if you discourage them from that typical route let them choose to go wherever they want. They only get the college experience once. Let me ask you, what has that typical route gotten us? Those of you who went to college, be honest about your experience. Just think about it. Who's driving that ship? The Lord or the world? Who is guiding your decisions? The Lord? Or the world. I'm not saying we don't want to educate our children. I'm just saying think clearly. Think clearly about it. Also, consider the commands of Titus 2, verses 1 through 8 in raising up children. Now, this is not just a family question. This is a church question. Right? You might say, Pastor, you've only talked to families thus far. Well, I'm going to talk to everybody now. Did you notice as we read through Titus 2 that there were specific commands and instructions for each generation? He says, older women, we'll start with older men, older men, be sober, 
reverent, temperate, sound in faith and love and in patience. Let me ask you, older men, did those things mark your life? Why does he say it? Because down later in that, he says to exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Who does the exhorting in the church? The older men. Older men, be exemplary to younger men. Let me ask you a very practical question. When have you sat down with a younger man and talked to them about the decisions you've made as a father and a husband and what the Lord has taught you? Some of you have done that with me. That's easy. I'm the pastor. What about the other younger men? Older women. Reverend in behavior, not slanderers, gossips, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. But listen to this. Because it's easy for us to operate in just this random bubble that nobody knows doing those things. I'm doing these good works over here. They say to admonish the younger women. And I would ask you a question. Do your Bible studies contain this? Do you fellowship with young women and say these things? Because this is what the Bible says. doesn't mean you can't say other things. But if you're not saying these things, you're missing the boat. Love your husbands. Love your children. To be discreet. To be chaste, to be CEOs, homemakers, sorry. Good and obedient to their husbands. Not tolerate their husbands. Obedient. Do you notice the condition attached to this? That the word of God may not be blasphemed. That's what older men are to teach younger men. Younger women, older women are to teach younger women. What that does is that prepares the church for the generations to come. And that is what is called an inheritance. Preparing them for what is to come. Leaving an inheritance requires thinking about your grandchildren, not just your children. If you've already lost much of the battle with your children, let me encourage you to fight for what you can and especially fight for your grandchildren. They are inheriting what you've sown with your own children. God forgives sin. Amen. That's the gospel. But consequences of sin still remain. And let me point you to this. Because some people think broken families are hopeless families. And that's not the case. If you've ever read the beginning of the New Testament, if you've ever read the prophets, one of the promises that accompanied the ministry of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ was this, that God turns the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children To the fathers. A broken family is not a hopeless family. God's mercy in Christ is there to lay hold of. May God have mercy on us as we prepare, as we work to think clearly, and remember that we, our children, and our children's children belong to Him. Amen. Let's pray.
Our Lord in heaven, who is sufficient for these things but you alone? We might can only gain an inch of ground for the rest of our lives, but that inch will be for you. Help us to fight for it, remembering that you are merciful, that you keep covenant to a thousand generations. Some of us can lay up an inheritance in one way. Some of us can lay up an inheritance in another. And help us not to lose sight that we are to care about those who will follow us and to do what we can to please you, to leave an inheritance for them. We pray it with the prayer that Christ has taught us. Our Father...